I love the parable of the blind men and the elephant, where the blind men are placed around the elephant and they're asked to describe what it's like just by feeling it. And so the guy holding the tail says, the elephant is like a frayed rope. And the guy holding the ear says, the elephant is like a giant banana leaf. And they all have different descriptions as they go around the elephant, and they're all true, but it's not until we have all of their perspectives combined that we actually know what an elephant is like. just a little preview of the upcoming inaugural episode of A Better Tomorrow, a podcast about the people trying to build a better, brighter, more sustainable future. I'm your host, Nick Kerwin. Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode. In thinking about starting this podcast, I was thinking about a lot of things, what I wanted to focus on, what sort of topics I wanted to delve into, and I kept coming back to this notion of capitalization, this idea that we are at our best when everyone in society is allowed to reach their highest human potential. And then I was left with this other question. What is our highest human potential? What constitutes the end game? And I was left to ponder one of the great truths of the human condition, that we are and will forever be flawed and imperfect. And yet, in no way does that make the pursuit of a more perfect world any less noble. In no way does that undermine the idea that we can do better. We can still invent new products to solve some of the 21st century's most daunting challenges. We can still create new services and improve upon existing systems in a way that will transform our energy economy. We can still participate in the political fights to make our society a more just, more equal, and more inclusive space. We can still conduct business in such a way that we can balance our stakeholders' interest with our stockholders' dividends. We can still create. We can still imagine. We can still dream. As I dream about what the future holds, I start to envision a society that's a little bit more equal, that's a little bit less concerned about living on the brink of catastrophe because of climate change, that's a little bit less entrenched with the geopolitical battles that keep us on the edge of our seats day in and day out. And ideally a world that's a little bit less distracted and a little bit more focused on what comes next. And in thinking about what comes next, I'm inclined to think about what came before. And this first episode at New Belgium Brewery got me thinking a lot about beer. Beer is one of my favorite beverages. I'm sure many of you agree. Beer is pretty great. And in doing a little bit more research about beer, the story about how beer was discovered is really the story about how civilization was born. And I find that absolutely fascinating. It takes me back to this time, eight to 10,000 years ago, in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq, the Fertile Crescent, the ancient breadbasket of the world, in a time before the agricultural revolution, in a time before modern civilization. 
It was a time when nomadic tribes of maybe a few dozen or a few hundred people, they'd work together to survive. They would hunt and gather day in and day out. And they'd be focused on surviving for that day or the next few days. But they were constantly under the siege of scarcity or drought and continuously being forced to move by famine or hunger. I'm sure this was a life fraught with all sorts of calamities and violence. And so I think about the discovery of agriculture and what a monumental shift that that discovery represented in human history. In discovering agriculture, our ancestors planted the seeds of civilization. Yet it was also the first time that they really discovered what is sustainable. Because in planting a grain or a vegetable and harvesting it year in and year out, it creates a sustainable food source, which means you don't have to always be moving and you don't have to constantly be thinking about where your day's meal is coming from because you start to plan ahead and you start to think more in terms of months and maybe even years. Whereas before, you were th thinking in terms of days, maybe at the most in terms of weeks. And I think that that really gets at this notion of what sustainability is because in its essence, it's this idea that we're creating or harvesting a non-finite resource. We can harvest that resource time and time again. That if managed correctly, you don't have to run out of that resource. You can plan ahead. You can rotate crops. If you don't deplete your topsoil, if you don't dry up your aquifers for your water, then you can manage your resource in a way that year in and year out, you're going to end up having enough food. And you'll also be left with this knowledge and the certainty that you will have enough food for the entire year. And you'll have enough food next year. And in that certainty, that's where civilization is born. But where was the agricultural revolution born? What got the nomads from this place of daily toll, from hunting and gathering, and turned them into an agrarian society? There are many archaeologists who believe that the answer is beer. At some point, maybe 10,000 years ago or so, there was a nomadic tribe. And at this point, this tribe has pottery, right? So likely they'd collected some sort of cereal grains, some wild grains, and they were soaking them in pots of water for an upcoming meal. But for some reason, these pots get left out for a few days and some wild yeast ends up making it into these pots and a natural fermentation starts. And then the tribe comes back a few days later to find these bowls and thinking it's still fine, edible food, they drink up. And sure enough, they've accidentally discovered alcohol. Now, in doing so, they've created the motivation to recreate that experience. They start talking and asking themselves, what do we do? How do we create this? So they go out and they find some more grain and they soak it in water and they leave it out for a few days. And sure enough, some of the batches end up with some of that same wild yeast, likely in a similar area where natural yeast is more likely in the air. And voila, they're left with a seemingly magical potion. And yet, pretty soon, they discover that this potion has a limit, and that that limit is the grain they are putting in the beer. Well, being that this beer is so powerful, the stakes are all of a sudden high enough, the bar has been sufficiently raised. Some of these tribesmen and women, they start asking themselves, how can we recreate this? And in doing so, they start asking the questions that will ultimately be the keys to unlocking the agrarian revolution. 
I just love thinking about that. I love how the story of how beer was discovered is really the story about how when people started to think about a better tomorrow, a tomorrow where you can have beer with your next meal, that that was when humanity pivots towards modern civilization. With that, I can think of no better place to start our podcast than at New Belgium Brewery up in Fort Collins, Colorado. New Belgium Brewery is the fourth largest craft brewery and the eighth largest brewery in the United States. They are best known for their flagship beer, Fat Tire, but they also carry a great selection of seasonal and year-round beers to satisfy every palate. I was really excited that New Belgium was going to participate in our podcast because they are a for-profit company that is focused on making a great product, but they're also an inspiration in terms of running a business as a force for good. They are a 100% employee-owned company, and they really lead by example on so many levels. On this upcoming episode, we were lucky enough to be joined by Katie Wallace, who you heard at the top of the episode. Katie is the Assistant Director of Sustainability, an employee owner, and a self-described purveyor of good. This is going to be a great episode. We are going to delve into all sorts of interesting topics, from employee ownership to sustainable manufacturing processes to water law in the West. We will discuss how New Belgium is influencing political decisions at a local, state, national, and even international level. And we will talk about how they have built a culture of sustainability that empowers individuals at every level of their organization. So crack open a cold one and enjoy our first episode of A Better Tomorrow. We are at New Belgium Brewery in Fort Collins today. Uh, joining us is Katie Wallace. Katie's the Assistant Director of Sustainability here. Thanks for joining us today, Katie. Thanks for having me. So, as many of you know, New Belgium is a 100% employee-owned company, as well as a certified B Corporation. So, in addition to pioneering progressive business practices, I was also hoping that you could start off by talking about you know, some of the sustainability initiatives going on here at New Belgium. Sure. Well, sustainability has been in our DNA since the very beginning. When Jeff and Kim, our co-founders, started the brewery, they took a hike in Rocky Mountain National Park and set their core values and beliefs. And included in that was environmental stewardship and honoring nature at every turn. And several of our core values and beliefs speak to uh, bringing benefit to our co-workers and our community and the environment. So it's been a longtime value of ours. Back in the late 90s, we had a pretty cool thing happen where we realized our largest environmental impact was our coal-powered electricity. And so we took a a conversation with the city and asked if they had any renewables available. At that time, they said that there there was actually a wind farm going up in Wyoming, and they were being asked to pay into that. And However, they weren't sure that the ratepayers would go for it and increase. And we asked exactly how much money was needed, and it was a certain amount for a 10-year contract. And we had that money in the bank, but it had already been promised to coworkers as profit-sharing. And so we actually, our co-founders came to all the co-workers and they asked them what they would like to do with it. Would they like to keep their profit sharing, which is completely understandable. People may have already made plans for it. Or would they like to take this opportunity to bring wind power to Fort Collins? And, and Jeff and Kim left the room, and about 45 minutes later, the co-workers came and announced to them that unanimously every single person had 
decided to give up profit sharing that year and bring one power to Fort Collins. That's incredible. Yeah, it's a cool, very cool story, but I like to just share those because it is so much a part of our culture here. And that was a defining moment for us that day when we said everyone who works here is willing to put their money where their mouth is and, and we're in this together. And that makes our jobs a lot easier today. They're a team of three of us, and the director of sustainability and myself, and a sustainability specialist. And we work on projects, but we work in tandem with people across the entire brewery. And there are voices and ideas, feedback coming from hundreds of coworkers in our Fort Collins brewery, our Asheville brewery, and within the field of sales and marketing people that live across the different states in which we distribute beer. But some of the things, you know, last year we put up another 100 kilowatts of solar. This year we are researching a few different things. We're looking at setting a new greenhouse gas reduction goal that would be a little bit different than what we did last time. And so putting together some plans to hopefully work towards carbon neutral by 2050, though we need to figure out how that's actually going to happen. So what are your Um, current goals right now? Currently we wanted to reduce our carbon footprint per per unit of beer, so an intensity ratio, by 25% from 2006 to 2015 levels. We didn't quite make that, and this year, this time when we're setting the new goals, we'll be setting them not on a per-barrel basis, but on an absolute reduction basis, and, and hopefully this time having some of those plans better laid out for exactly how we'll get there, just growing up and becoming more sophisticated in the way that we set goals. But you know, part of the issue is that For us, for example, we set goals to reduce water to 3.5 barrels of water per one barrel of beer. Currently, we're around four. And we have made, in 2006, we were at four to one as well. And we've made a lot of reductions. But we've also changed the types of beers we make. We make more hoppier beers. We make more beers. So there's more cleaning involved in this, more water involved in it. So while we've made amazing reductions, millions and millions of gallons in reductions, uh, we've also increased our water usage because of the different portfolio mixes that we're creating here at the brewery. And so there are challenges where we have these great ideas and these great goals, but then things shift a little bit and we have to readjust and balance those out. But yeah, so other projects that we're looking at right now is reusing gray water. That's something that is becoming increasingly possible in Colorado with Colorado water law. And as soon as we have the green light on some of those things, we'd like to reduce our water consumption by reusing some of the water that we treat in areas like landscaping and cooling towers. Yeah, so speaking about you know, gray water, what are some of the challenges faced specifically in Colorado with some of the, the local water laws? Water law in the West is a bit different than it is in other places, and you can buy water and land separately from one another. So while you may oftentimes have a stream or something running through your property, unless you've bought the water that's in that stream, you're not able to use it. And that this was at the time when Colorado was founded, even before we were actually a state. Water law was in existence here, and so this is something that served that time, but we're finding that it makes it a little bit more difficult to act more sustainably in this realm. And so with water rights, when you purchase that water, you purchase one use of that water, and using, you know, so after you use it, it needs to go back into the aquifers or back into the streams so that people downstream can use it from you because they have purchased that. While water reuse would be the most sustainable option, instead of treating fresh water and using it every single time, we are not always allowed to do that. 
we, we have done some cool things over the past, for example, in our packaging line, when we built this recent one in 2007. We worked with the manufacturer to include a feature in there that collects the internal rinse water and uses it for the external rinse. So we're washing the insides of bottles. They're brand new, but we need to rinse them out in case there was a speck of dust or something that got into them. So that water is, for all intents and purposes, pretty clean at that point in time. And and so we actually capture that and are able to reuse that on the external rinse when you wash the suds off the bottle after it's been capped. And that is helping us to reduce our water usage by a million gallons a year. Wow. And we were able to get an exemption for that because it's considered part of a, the same process. So pack it, it's a part at one-time use in the bottling line. Inside of a box called the process. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah, it's incredible how laws will dictate so many manufacturing processes like that, right. particularly around water. Mm-hmm. And there have been some, you know, you're not, you're not even allowed, you haven't been allowed previously to collect rainwater for irrigation, and that's changing. So residents are able now to collect their rainwater with some of the new legislation that's coming out, and we're hopeful that one day that that will move in a direction that helps us to be wiser and more efficient with the way that we use water. So does New Belgium get involved in terms of the policy discussions at the local and state level when it comes to issues like water rights or you know, renewable energy or any other you know, environmental issues? We, we are pretty active in the realm of advocacy. The, we are still quite a small company overall. Um, we produce less than half a percent of the beer in the United States. So we, we have limited resources on what we can actually dive into with a adequate level of expertise but we do get pretty involved where our voice is most valuable so we did submit comments and support for the Colorado water plan we have written op-eds that talk about the importance of healthy water systems and the creation of beer and the livelihood of brewers and advocated for clean water legislation so that we can protect those waterways that we depend upon for our business We've written letters of support for climate policy, and we do believe that there's ways in which we need to work as an entire system to regulate our and, and manage our greenhouse gas emissions. So we think that sometimes beer can bring an important voice to the table, and beer tends to bring people together on heavier topics, and so we can lighten the mood a little bit where there's tension, and a lot of people on both sides of the aisle like beer, and we are hopefully helping to create some more productive and collaborative spaces for those conversations from time to time. That's fantastic. It's like beer is the, the lubricant for democracy. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's great. So I wanted to go back to something you said earlier because you were talking about moving your goals from you know, 25% reduction to carbon neutral by 2050. Mm-hmm. And so can you talk about, you know, what the internal processes and internal meetings and discussions looked like that got you from point A to now what is an incredibly ambitious goal. Well, and I will say that we haven't landed on that goal. It is our high hope to land (laughs) on that goal, but we're in the process of defining that right now. And what that looked like for us was our sustainability team of three coming together and talking about what a best-in-class goal would be today, which is different than what it was in 2006 when we set our first goals. We as a society have learned quite a bit about sustainability and about climate challenges since 2006. So we come together and we research 
best-in-class goals, and what we're seeing with that is that they need to be contextually based so that they are in line with what scientists say we need to achieve in order to maintain a stable climate and a stable planet. So there, that's why we are looking at the carbon neutral by 2050, because that's a science-based goal and recommendation from where we need to be, and we, and we want to make sure that we're doing our part in that. And then, so we go to a broader team here called the Natural Resource Management Team and share out with them what best in practices goals might look like and model out a few examples of how we could reach that and how much that would cost. And together they provide input for us in that and help have helped to make it a more robust and realistic plan with some more intelligent modeling. And we've gone to a few other groups to seek input from them as well and feedback. And then we presented to the management teams and said that this is something that we are hoping to do. However, we would need management level support for financial resources and hours for coworkers to spend on some of these projects. And we are now tasked with going back and looking at each of those projects in a more in depth and really coming up with an exact plan about what projects um, we could achieve over the next five years to meet the interim goal between that would keep us on schedule for carbon neutral by 2050 and come back with pricing and reduction potential. And from that, you know, we might hit some real limitations financially, time-wise, and we might not be able to get to that point, but we feel like we need to do the best, very best we can to propose that and, and move in that direction. And my hope is, too, our hope is that by 2050 we'll be seeing drastic improvements on the grid systems so that the electricity that we are getting from the utility is has a higher percentage of renewables and that will help us in a huge way to reduce our impact. And that's something we are really lucky to live in Fort Collins because we have a climate action plan that my coworker Dana actually sat on that committee and helped to devise that plan here in the city of Fort Collins. The city council approved it, and they are looking at moving towards carbon neutral by 2050 so that we're not alone in this. We're part of a bigger grid. We're part of a bigger system. We're all going to have to work together. It would be very, very challenging for a business to do this on their own, given the current infrastructure. That was actually where I wanted to go, because when you're talking about investing you know, very significant amounts of capital, you know, mm-hmm. precious capital, how do you balance that with the need to make a profit, the need to grow your business? How does this fit into that larger equation? Well, I think when you look at triple bottom line and looking at social, environmental, and economic indicators for health and success, that it oftentimes people want to prioritize those, and there is a priority for sure. And if we don't have a planet, we don't have a society, if you don't have healthy, happy people coming to work, you're not able to make the profits and And so they're all very interrelated. However, all three of them, we think, are equally important to doing what we do. Because if we're not paying good attention to the economics behind what we're doing, we won't be in business to generate this positive work. And and I think that at New Belgium, I feel really lucky to have been here all this time and working within a company that was has always had a lot of foresight and vision for sustainability. I think that our business model and, and the leadership here and Kim, our, our co-founder and CEO for 25 years, really changed the way that people could see business, change what, pe- what people think is possible for business. And because of that, I think it's important that we are able to tend to the economic side of things because Kim has really driven the idea that What's good for people and planet is good for business, and that's a business model that we found a lot of success in. We've grown and we've been very successful over the last 25 years and showing that it is possible to be a force for good in the world and still make money. And I think that 
we want to make sure that we can keep our doors open and the business side of it viable so that we continue to promote that approach and, and hopefully inspire other businesses to go in that direction as well. So, so we don't think that we are profitable in spite of our social and environmental efforts. We think it's because of them. And a lot of the investments we make are having paybacks that last for many, many years. So we might have a payback period for five years or something, but we know we're going to be in business for longer than five years. And, and we have, uh, over the last 25 years in business, reaped a lot of those savings by investing in the most efficient approach at the time. And so, but at that same time, you still have trade-offs, right? So it's maybe not always possible to get to exactly where you want to be tomorrow. And where we do find those trade-offs, we're not able to, for example, purchase renewables 100% at 100% today and reach 100% efficiency today. But we know that we're working towards that. And we're not just saying, oh, well, it's not possible and stopping the process. We're saying financially right now, we wouldn't be able to be responsible with our with the economic side of the business if we were to do these things. However, we do see ways that we can change the infrastructure and, and get into some of those larger conversations at a policy level, at an industry level, at a national level, even an international level sometimes that can help move us towards a more sustainable grid options, more higher recycled content, etc. These are some of those things that we alone can't affect that change today, but we can and do work with organizations at a national and international level and a local level to help make that infrastructure possible one day. So is it safe to say that you know one of the goals, one of the intents is to influence those broader conversations? And Yeah. If, if that's a <laughs> fair way to characterize it. Yeah, um, I'm yeah. Cu- I'm curious because you mentioned international conversations. What are those international conversations? We are part of a group called the Beverage Industry Environmental Roundtable, and it is a group of beverage suppliers from across the world. And you'll see large members on there like Coca-Cola and Nestle and Anheuser-Busch InBev. And then there's us, Little New Belgium, <laughs> um, by far the smallest company within that group. But that's where a conversation is had around international best practices for climate legislation, for carbon legislation, uh, and international best practices for sustainable farming techniques or sustainable packaging. And we're able, there are guidance documents that are put out by that group that we've contributed to. And it's also an opportunity to track some of those conversations that are happening at an international level and bring them back to a national and local level here in the United States. So one of the other pieces I wanted to touch on was, you know, in your role specifically and the sustainability team, how do you guys foster a culture, a broader culture of sustainability and environmental consciousness? We have three people, like I mentioned, that work on the sustainability team, but we like to say that everybody works in sustainability. We have 760 coworkers between the two breweries and our field teams, and I think that all of those all, all of those coworkers are necessary for identifying opportunities to be more efficient and to create a better business for the world. And I love the parable of the blind men and the elephant, where the blind men are placed around the elephant and they're asked to describe what it's like just by feeling it. And so the guy holding the tail says, the elephant is like a frayed rope. And the guy holding the ear says, the elephant is like a giant banana leaf. And they all have different descriptions as they go around the elephant, and they're all true, but it's not until we have all of their perspectives combined that we actually know what an elephant is like. 
And so I think the same thing goes here for New Belgium and for our coworkers. It's not until we have all of their perspectives combined, whether you just started yesterday driving a forklift in the warehouse or you sell beer in Minnesota or you have worked here for 20 years and are on the leadership teams. Every single person sees a different side of the elephant, a different side of the brewery than than we do and, and sitting in a sustainability team office too, right? And so we depend on the ideas coming in from our coworkers that are on the packaging lines, who are driving the cars, who are seeing and touching and operating the valves and the faucets throughout the the brewery. And we really depend on them to help us operate it in in an efficient way and, and come up with ideas, innovations in that. We have, for example... Our team that works to secure our bicycles every year. We, you may know, you've seen like New Belgium cruiser bikes. Right? Yeah. So yeah. at your one-year anniversary, you get a cruiser bike for working at New Belgium. You can't buy them anywhere, but we do give them to accounts who are able to sell a lot of our beer, or we auction them off, donate them to nonprofits who are auctioning them off and raising sometimes a few thousand dollars by selling the bike. And and so our team really wanted to look more into the sustainability and social justice issues on the manufacturing of the bicycles. And when they got into that, they found a bicycle company that started up in Detroit called Detroit Bikes. And that company was actually using old equipment and buildings from the automobile manufacturing industry that had been abandoned when manufacturing went overseas and re-employing people who worked on that machinery who had been laid off when production went overseas. And so they're re-employing those men and women, and they are re-employing the equipment and the buildings. And instead of making cars, now they're making bicycles, and they're made in the U.S. And so um, this year, for 2016, our order was the largest order ever placed for American-made bicycles. And how many was it? It was about 2,500 bicycles. Wow. And Detroit Bikes doubled their staff to fulfill our order. So creating American jobs, reducing the transportation. It's having a ripple effect. Yeah, yeah. And they're just great people that share our, our values, and we know it because we know them. And so that was a really cool thing that a few of our coworkers brought to the table. And, and there's so many examples of that where a lot of the cool things that you see about New Belgium and our ability to reach some of these big goals that we're striving towards are, are happening and are coming from our coworkers. So, so we think that it's really important to have that culture of sustainability and a culture of ownership throughout the brewery in order to make this work really happen. It makes it a lot easier for us to do our jobs. And I think that it also makes it a much more enjoyable and meaningful place to work for our different coworkers throughout the brewery. So in terms of executing on strategy, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys face in actually reaching those goals? You gave the example of the water, for instance, mm-hmm. trying and reducing in all these ways, but not moving the net needle, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, can you speak to some of those specific challenges? Yes. I think whenever we want to do a project, we don't always have visibility into the reduction potential for it. So it's really hard to prioritize which project should come first. We did put in submeters for water throughout the brewery a couple of years ago, and we're working right now on building a software that can help analyze that and show some stats in real time to operators for how much water we're using per brew, per process, and per beer. And so I think not having the visibility within the system is really limiting because we're not really sure like how to get there. How, what is the reduction potential for these different projects? And so we're working on projects right now to, like I said, analyze the data from the submeters, perhaps put in additional submeters for electricity and natural gas so that we can just have better visibility into what's happening. But submeters are expensive. Software is expensive. And, and these are things that 
even most breweries our size don't have these types of things, much less like, and also the breweries that are smaller. And I think that can be a big challenge for people is to really understand where, once you've got a lot of the low-hanging fruit out of the way, where are you going to make those reductions? And then the other bigger challenge would be that a lot of times it's not up to us. What, what kind of energy mix comes in on the grid is not necessarily our decision, although we've been able to influence it over the years. We can't make wide, uh, broad-sweeping changes to that. The percent of recycled content in our glass bottles is something that we can't control because that really is up to every single municipality across the nation to put in good glass collection systems, and that's going to be a different environment for every single municipality. And so we did help to start the Glass Recycling Coalition at a national level that was launched this past May. We worked with Diageo and the Glass Packaging Institute to launch that. And we have members that are really amazing throughout the entire value chain of glass. And I am really excited about what this group can accomplish to drive higher recycled content in our glass bottles over time. But again, that's something we can't do alone. So some of the biggest areas of impact throughout the life cycle of our beer are not in our own hands. And then the things that are in our own hands, there's a lack of visibility to sometimes. And and it really is a lot of estimating and guesswork to come up with the best guess on on exactly how we can push those needles. And we're getting there more and more, (laughs) closer and closer every day. As you face some of those challenges, obviously you're continually refining and trying to improve and become more efficient. That's just the nature of good business, right? Mm -hmm. But can you speak to some of the specific lessons learned over the years and talk about how your approach personally and your team's approach to sustainability has changed over the years? I think not only has like New Belgium changed over the years quite a bit, but as we've grown and evolved, but the beer market has changed quite a bit and also our understanding as a society about, you know, what of sustainability. And, you know, when we first started, there weren't greenhouse gas accounting protocols There wasn't an intergovernmental panel of climate change scientists. And so a lot of these things we've learned along the way as we as a people have learned along the way. And when we first started at the brewery, we said, this is something that's important to us. And I think our founders really championed that. And again, like I said, our coworkers voted for wind power. It became a big part of our culture. And individually, people always have and continue to champion that in their roles. But we realized at one point that we needed a little bit of a more sophisticated system around that and needed to actually have goals. How are we actually doing? We, we know we're doing some cool things, but how is that really adding up? And in 2006, when we were 15 years old, we did a process that created a, a sustainability management system. So we invited a couple of consultants in, and we had 17 coworkers throughout the brewery representing different departments, different tenures, and they were, we all came together and asked ourselves the questions, what, is, what are the big issues facing the planet today? How is the brewing industry negative, negatively impacting that and, and contributing to those challenges? And then how can we as New Belgium start to turn that around? And we identified at that time that we need to do a better job of collecting our data and tracking that to really understand where we line up. We need to do a life cycle assessment of the greenhouse gas emissions throughout the entire life of a six-pack of fat tire to really understand where the impact is happening throughout the, the life cycle. I would say that was like a really surprising thing. I thought maybe transportation or something would be the biggest one, but by far it's actually the containers because they're so energy intensive to make, whether it's cans or bottles. And then also refrigeration at the retail level was a big one. Barley farming was a really big one. And so those are more in the top three, and they were really 
surprising ones for us and also ones that we couldn't control, right? They're not in our direct control. And a very small percentage of our overall impact actually comes from the brewing process. So that was a big eye-opener for us. So we, we really just got grounded in data and science in a way that we had never done before about 10 years ago. And since then, you know, at that time, we set goals. Once we had the data, we got the baselines, we set some goals to reduce them, but we were kind of guessing what, uh, what's possible. And at this point, like I mentioned earlier, we are now resetting a lot of those goals. We're in the next phase of that, and we are making sure that this time we – and this is just some stuff we've learned all along the way and that other companies were learning along the way as well. That, um, we've learned this time that we want to have contextually-based goals so that what does our watershed need – us to do? How much water does our watershed require us to save in order to maintain a healthy watershed? What type of greenhouse gas reductions do we need to make in order to reach climate stability? And that's where the carbon neutral by 2050 comes from. So we're starting with those goals about what, what does the earth need us to do, and then looking at exact plans, mapping out exact plans on how to get to that. And those are still very hard. We don't have enough of the data to do that. But we are, I think, in that sense, becoming a lot more sophisticated in how we're actually getting. And so that's, that's one side of our work, which is really to have a scientific foundation for the plans that we're making. And then another piece of it, is, I would say, is in building that culture around sustainability. When I first started in this role, I would get projects on my desk to could you be the project manager for an improvement to our brew house because we think it'll save water? And, and there were certain projects like that that came through, and I thought, well, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not an engineer. And also, if, if I would be the bottleneck, if our team would be the bottleneck for some of these things, it, it, it wouldn't get done as fast as it, other, it could otherwise. And so at that point, I went to every single department throughout the brewery, and we talked about how they interact with sustainability. And I think at that time, you know, with the wind power vote and everything, we, we knew as a company that we all cared about this, but we weren't all sure how that relates to our daily jobs. And so it was really fun. I had this template that I would use to go into every department, and it was really fun to have a conversation about sustainability with all the packagers that's really focused on packaging, or have this conversation with all the accounting group about accounting and, and really be able to dive into the specifics of how this interacts with their daily work. And through that, we found a lot of champions. So we, we stopped doing the green team, which was kind of a lot of people would show up when it, they had time and it was a little bit more difficult to manage. And we started doing a natural resource management team and a sustainability champions team so that we could really support people who in their roles are able to integrate sustainability and that it's a part of their job. And our fleet manager, for example, started in incorporating a lot of electric cars and hybrids and, and things into her uh, to-do list. And she, at this point, knows more about sustainable transportation than anyone else on our team. And so really being able to support those subject matter experts to become experts in sustainability as it relates to their, their world has been a really cool thing to see unfold. And I think that that's helped us to come closer to our goals as well. Because like we said before, like if it's just a few people trying to find ideas and manage projects, that, that's really going to slow down the process and limit it quite a bit. So really coming to see our culture and our coworkers as an important part of, of how we're getting this work done was, I think, a shift for us at some point along the way that We've been doing it. We have a high-involvement culture here, but to really use that to reach our sustainability goals was a shift along the way. And, and also, a lot of people were talking about sustainability at that time as, like, 
you know, the shame and blame and gloom and doom. And, and one of my titles is purveyor of the good life because I wanted to say, like, it's not all about this. Like, life can be, we can thrive as, as a people with a thriving environment. And let's not see those two things as separate. Those can work together and let's find those solutions that make our lives better and the, the planet better as well. So we really focus on the, those win-win situations. And so then I would say beyond that, another big a big change was letting our natural resource management team be accountable for our goals. And so that's not just the sustainability team. So that's a cross-functional group of people that that come together every month and it's engineers and maintenance and operators and brewers and and we together are all kind of responsible for meeting those goals. So can you talk about how that team specifically mm-hmm. came about and sure. what it's yeah, it's essentially empowered to do? After touring with the different departments and hearing about people's ideas at a functional level about how we could be more sustainable, I thought that the the green team was maybe not the best way to go anymore. So we we canceled our green team, but we didn't want to just get rid of a team altogether. And so our team started talking about the potential of uh, bringing people in from technical roles to be a part of managing these goals. And that time... There actually was a, coincidentally, a workshop put on by the Colorado Industrial Energy Challenge, uh, which we were members of, and it was a workshop around an energy management team. So we asked our director of engineering and our director of maintenance if they would please go to that team and report back to us about how we create something like that here at New Belgium. But we wanted to do it not just for energy, but also water and our other natural resources. And so that's why we decided to call it the natural resource management team. And then they came back from that workshop and had some templates that we could use and things that... resource management team should be looking at and with that we started monthly meetings and we had this great cross-departmental group come together and start managing those goals and look identifying the projects that would help us to get there i think that you know over the years that was back i think it was back in 2010 or 2011 that we started the natural resource management team and i would say even today it's still evolving we're learning a lot of lessons along the way do we have the right people at the table are those people integrated well throughout the brewery so that they can represent this and these goals and other processes and other decision-making areas? Like when we're scaling a new beer to production level, how do we do that? And how is, what kind of impact is that having when we're creating those new beers, right, that are hoppier or creating more higher number of beers and we're having more cleaning? You know, how is this going to affect uh, our progress to our goals? And and so we, we've, we're still evolving what, what that looks like, you know, that group, the membership and the exact charter for that group but I think that we're landing in a really cool place right now where we seem to have the right people around the table and managing that data more diligently and and having a better more comprehensive idea of of what's happening around the brewery it's going to be affecting those goals positively or negatively so at this point I think that the biggest step for us to make that group more meaningful is to have a board of directors level approval for metrics that we're setting so that we can have you know, a lot of support as we're trying to push some of those projects forward. Do you see the natural resources team as something that can be replicated by other breweries and by other companies around the world? And how do you see New Belgium playing a part in influencing that evolution at a broader scale? We... My coworker Maddie Gilliland and I presented at the Craft Brewers Conference a few years ago on the structure of the team, and we absolutely think that it's something that can be replicated across other breweries. You know, some breweries are really small, and they have three coworkers, and they are all on the team. So, 
maybe just having a, an agenda or, or a regular set of, of items that they talk about monthly is something that can formalize it a little more. Other breweries have more coworkers, and I do absolutely think that anyone who is working in managing sustainability within a company, whether it's a brewery or any other company, that you'll need to have more of a cross-functional group to help you reach those goals because there are so many decisions that our coworkers in those areas are making throughout their daily work that will impact our progress towards our goals. And, and so, yes, absolutely, especially as a manufacturer, having a natural resource management team that's looking at our metrics collectively, creating those metrics and, and defining the plan on how to reach those is really important. And there are so many things that we wouldn't hear about otherwise on a sustainability team if it weren't for this meeting. And so having people throughout the brewery in different parts, like hearing different conversations, be able to bring all of that knowledge back to one room helps us to give us a more comprehensive idea on what's affecting progress towards or away from our goals. So one of the other things I wanted to touch on was you guys have recently opened a new facility in Asheville. I was just curious as to how do you export this culture of sustainability to a new facility on the other side of the country? Mm-hmm. Culture is this funny thing because it's collectively derived by all of the people who are there and so everyone here at this brewery here in Fort Collins has contributed to our culture here and everyone in Asheville is contributing to the culture there and because it is influenced by each and every person it's going to be different within different groups of people and we really hope that there is a different culture in Asheville just like in biodiversity it's very healthy to have different species of plants we think that it's really important to have different different cultures among the different areas, even different cultures among first packaging versus accounting or something like that. That really helps us because it, different personality types and different cultures see things, different opportunities. And so we have a more diverse array of, of insights coming from different subcultures. But at the same time, just like with plants, you don't want to have mastered photosynthesis, right, and then have... An, plant in a different area of the ecosystem forget what photosynthesis was and trying to start new and fresh on that right they might be different species that require different nutrients and have different functions but but they still need to understand the basics of what creates life and and success and so so we're really careful about making sure that our core values and beliefs and our overall knowledge like systemic knowledge of sustainability was being transferred to Asheville, but we think that those that how they implement it and the projects that they see and find will be a little bit different. But in order to, we like to say inoculate, not carbon copy, but inoculate the new brewery. It's a good word, yeah. <laughs> um, with our um, culture, which you know it has so many ties to beer, right? Our yeast cultures, and we inoculate different barrels with with our yeast cultures, and they kind of create different beers, but from the same foundation. But so inoculating that that site with our culture around sustainability as we know it today was something that was really important to us. And hiring the launch team there and, and the leadership team within Asheville, we brought. A, core group of people from the Fort Collins Brewery to start the Asheville Brewery. And one of the hiring criteria, you know, we always look at how much of a cultural fit someone is when we hire on to make sure that they are going to be on board with championing our goals and, and who we want to be in the world. But we paid extra special attention to that when we hired the leadership team for Asheville. And we wanted people who, in their heart and soul and the fabric of, of their cells, that they were actually true and true, uh, the epitome of New Belgium's core values and beliefs. And so I think we did a really wonderful job. That team is so inspiring. 
and some of the best of the best, and they are there influencing the people that are coming along, but also being influenced by that new community and their new hometowns, and weaving that all in with the foundation of who we want to be in the world. That's fantastic. I think I want to end it there. Okay. Uh, But yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Katie, and we will all be watching as New Belgium continues to grow and influence business and beer for the better. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. We're excited to watch that too. There you have it, folks. The first episode of A Better Tomorrow podcast is in the books. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I want to give a special thanks to Max Richardson, who composed our theme music and helped produce this episode, as well as James Rutherford Richardson V, who built the website. And a big thank you to all the friends and family who have helped make this podcast a reality. I couldn't have done it without you. Please tune in next time. We have a great episode on deck. We will be joined by Steve Feinberg, the founder and former CEO of New Era Colorado, a voter advocacy organization that has worked on voter registration as well as advocated for a number of really important issues that affect all of our lives across the country. We're going to have a fascinating conversation, so I hope you'll join us and tune into the next episode of A Better Tomorrow, a podcast about the people trying to build a better, brighter, more sustainable future. And remember, to vote with your dollars and support companies like New Belgium, who are using business as a force for good. Until next time, I'm your host, Nick Kerwin.